0: All right, well, I'm, I'm really excited to be able to speak with you this morning. Um, I got a call earlier this week that Maria was sick and um, probably is going to be the type of sick that um, was going to destroy her voice for the rest of the week, it's just kind of the way it goes. And so I got tapped and they said, hey, can you do this? And I said, yeah, um, I'm excited. So um, I am excited. So this morning, as I, um, as I was going over uh, where we are in our series, this No More Camouflage series. And um, I began to think about, you know, how how I could um, relate this to myself, and and uh, I began to think about this uh, young man that I've been mentoring. Right, he's not a young man; he's he's a young boy. Okay, um, I met Michael. Um, what? It's been four years ago now. Okay, this is, he was in first grade when I met him, and um, he's was about this tall, maybe this tall, and um, he's probably. Uh, I don't know how to describe Michael. Okay? He's, uh, he's an interesting young man. Let's put it that way. Um, he's got a lot of personality, and um, he used to make all kinds of really strange comments and things like that. He's, he's just a cool little kid and quirky and everything along those lines. And, um, and because of some of his quirkiness, his ability to connect with other people and things like that has always been a little bit of an issue for Michael. And so uh, as a mentor in the school system over at Fayette County, they asked me to come in and just kind of get to know him. Okay, Get to know him, get to uh, hang out with him, talk with him, help him kind of learn how to socialize with people. Okay, So um, we did that through games primarily. And so we would would come in on a Friday morning. I'd get there about 9 o'clock in the morning, something like that. I'd pick him up and we'd go to the counselor's office and we'd pick up a game and we'd go to a room and, and sit down and just kind of try to play through a game. And in first grade, um, one of the first games that I said, you know, we look at this big wall of games and said, Michael, what do you want to play? And uh, he goes, I want to play checkers. All right. How many of y'all have played checkers before? All right. Most most everybody's played checkers. Okay. So I'm sitting there thinking, okay, this is great. First grader, he should be able to play checkers. It should be all right, you know. But um, I quickly found out that Michael, um, first of all, he didn't know how to play checkers. Okay. Uh, somewhere along the line, he had found somebody who, or he'd seen somebody play checkers. But I also found out very quickly that Michael um, didn't like to lose at games. And so as, um, as we started playing and things started to kind of get to a place where, um, it, you know, there's only so much you can do in checkers not to, like, jump over somebody. I moved all the pieces that I could, you know, to give him every opportunity and chance to, to do something awesome. And then it just came to the point where he set up like this quadruple jump. Okay. In the rule in checkers, right? You got to take the jump. So I'm like, pow, 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 pow. Okay. You can't do that. Well, Michael, yeah, I can. That's the rules. No, that's not the rules. What, well, what are the rules then? Because no, no, that's not the rules. And the rules are, if there's a four jump, you can only take one. It's like, let me turn the box top over here and like read this here. Cause I don't think that's the rules. And, um, and then it turned out to, you know, you could move sideways if you wanted to. Um, you, could, you could move three or four spaces forward. You could move to the other color square if you wanted to so that somebody couldn't jump you. Um, and, if I mean, he probably had a Pokemon card he could pull out and play as part of the game. I don't know. Okay, but every, everything that he could possibly do to change the rules to the game so that he wouldn't lose, he did. Now, the hard part about changing the rules to a game in that way, and to put the, term, you know, put the game on his terms and to his advantage, is that I had no idea what the rules were. So it was, y'all ever play the card game Mal, Unconditional Mal? It's not a Southern thing, I don't know. But it's a game that you play cards and you don't know the rules. And so there's one person at the table who knows the rules, and so you just keep getting penalty cards over and over again until you figure it out. It's a horrible game. <laughs> It's lots, it's lots of fun, but it's a horrible game, okay? It's fun if you're in the charge of it, but um, I didn't know how to play checkers with Michael, and eventually, you know, it didn't matter anymore because I basically just said, okay, Michael, we're going to play, you know, Monopoly Junior or something like that because... At least, you know, I can say you can go this way. I I can guarantee they came up with some other rule for that, too. But we stopped playing checkers that year because it became so frustrating, not only for me as a mentor with him, but also in our relationship, because I would move a piece and then he would go, no, you can't do that. And then I'd be, yes, I can, you know, and then I found myself arguing with a first grader about checkers. This is not what we're supposed to be doing in a mentoring session. So we stopped playing checkers. So this is, this is our second week in the series No More Camouflage, which is a, a, a quest for holiness in our lives. And as I started thinking about this, this story came to my mind. And the question would be, You know, why, why would we alter our lives to match God's design? And that's really what, what holiness boils down to in a lot of ways, we alter our lives to match His design. Why would we give up things in our lives why would we set aside our own desires and our own will and our own circumstantial happiness to follow something that, that God would have for us? You know, in our culture today, we are told to do the best that we can in everything that we do. And I don't think this is a wrong thing, okay? We are told to do the best that we can no matter what or we'll never get ahead, of the person next to us. There's always a competition happening with somebody else who's right there along with you. We're never going to get ahead otherwise. We're told that we have to strive for the best, but sometimes we don't know what that best thing is, so it's like the best of what. Um, Most of the time, we're about accumulating things, and we don't like to say that, but we're about accumulating things. But the other thing that we become accumulate or accumulate or experiences, like, oh yeah, I've done that. I've been to this football game. I've been to this stadium. I've been to San DeMarco, whatever beach that is, somewhere on a cruise, okay? You know, I've been everywhere. We accumulate these experiences, and we don't abstain from anything that we think could make us happy in any kind of way, okay? We're about this pursuit, and it kind of sounds like Michael playing checkers. He wanted to win, and he would change the course, he would change the rules no matter what to succeed, to win. How many times have we looked at all the specifications for holiness, the things that we we see in, in this book, and we think, um, well, that's stifling to me. That doesn't make me happy. That's not what we want. That's, that's going to make me feel bad about myself because I don't, I don't do that, and so I'm just gonna ignore that piece of that. I'm not gonna I'm gonna let that piece go. And they make us feel sometimes unsuccessful because we don't match up. I want you to think about this for just a second, though. That there is a design from a creator, our creator, not to limit our lives. But to maximize our lives. It's designed to protect us from harmful behaviors and relationships. It's a design to give us purpose in our lives. It's a design to maximize our ability to love others around us and to do that like God would do it. It's a design to limit the amount of pain and hardship we might experience in our lives. But most of all, this design that God has for us, this design of holies, is designed to streamline our path to a relationship with Him, with this creator of the universe who is infinite yet still wants to know you and me. Y'all think about that? You ever think about it? You wake up in the morning and you, you see the sun, not, well, it's rising, that's what we call it, but. We realize at thousands of miles an hour, we are spinning on a globe in one little tiny corner of the universe, and the God who threw all of this into existence wants to know who you are, and wants you to know who He is. It's a streamlined path to that Creator. It's an amazing. It's an amazing thought. And it widens our lane, and it allows us to flow freely to either, even people around us. This designed for holiness. Or if you go and you look at where this word comes from, holiness, it's, it's about wholeness, completeness. This place where God has completed who we are, the wholeness of God, the holiness of God, is this pathway that he gives us to to him. Now, this has been a question of the human condition from the very start for thousands of years, and I want to take you back thousands of years to a story that we find in the book of Second Kings this morning. And it's kind of a long story, and so I've, I'm going to give you some background, and then we're going to read kind of what would seem to be a long portion of it. It didn't look as long on my my notes here um, until we started putting it into the the screens, and then I was like, "Holy cow, this is long," but it'll be good. Okay, so. Back in 686, okay, so we're talking a long time ago, all right, there was a king named Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, when, you, we, sing, when we talk about Jesus being God, Emmanuel with us, um, that piece of prophecy was about Jesus Christ, but it was also in that moment in time about King Hezekiah. There had been just pagan worship that had worked its way into the people of God, and Hezekiah came, and he was like God with, with us. He had brought a reform. He brought people back to the heart of God as a king, and he changed the nation of Judah. And he, um, he passes away in 686, and after that, his son Manasseh rules in the kingdom for about 44 years, okay? Now, Manasseh, as good as Hezekiah was, Manasseh was not. Okay. He brought back everything that his father had torn down. He brought back the idols into the into the temple. He brought back the bales. He brought back the worship of the shara, which was fertility god. And they would build these totem poles next to the altars of God. And so whenever you went to the altar, you were actually worshiping at another altar at the same time. And, and on the high places. And Manasseh brought all this back. And so what Hezekiah had worked for, his son destroyed. Manasseh passes and his son Amon comes around, and he rules for two years. And he only rules for those two years because he's murdered in his own home by his council because he's so corrupt. And so the world is not a good place. But in this moment, and when Ammon, excuse me, when Ammon is murdered, they bring his son to the throne, and his name is Josiah. Okay. He's eight years old when he becomes king. Have you got anybody in the room today who's eight years old? Anybody eight? How about nine? Somebody nine? There we go. Could you stand up for me? King over Judah. Bring it, right? Yes, you can sit down, man. Or you're the king. You can tell me what to do. I don't know. All right? So, I mean, king over Judah nine, eight years old, one year younger than that, okay? They make him king. And for 18 years, Josiah just does the job that is put before him. Now, in the 18th year of Josiah's reign, he sends, um, he sends guys to the temple. They're, they're doing some work on the temple trying to make sure it doesn't fall apart, okay? And he sends these people to the temple to count the money that's there, and as they count the money, they run into the high priest, and he says to them, Hey, I was cleaning out... This is, not, this is very much a Brent Ritter paraphrase, okay? So, I was cleaning out the temple, and guess what I found? The book of the law. Okay, let's, let's just step back a little second, okay? I was, I'm the high priest of all of Judah, and I, I work in the temple in Jerusalem. And as I, the leader of the, the Hebrew the people's religion, as I was cleaning out the temple while you guys were looking and counting for the money, I found the book of the law. For 44 years, Manasseh led people away from God. Two more years, Ammon led people away from God. Josiah didn't necessarily lead anybody away, but he just kept doing what his father and grandfather had done. So you're talking about, whatever that math is, 64 years, I think. 64 years, and the high priest had lost the Bible basically. Can you imagine us today saying, hey, I was cleaning out the sanctuary, and guess what? I found the Bible. That's how far the nation of Judah had strayed from God. And so he read the words to these, these men, and they were like, the king needs to hear this. And so they took this Torah, this book, and they read from it a portion of it probably from the book of Deuteronomy um, is what theologians believe and understand. And that's where we're going to pick up the story, and I want you to hear um, a little bit of what happens when Josiah hears and, and reads this book. So this is Second Kings chapter 22, verses 11 through 20. It says this, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes now, if you don't understand what that means, when when somebody mourned in this this time period in this culture, if they heard something or if somebody had passed or died, they would take their clothes and they would rip them apart, and they would go and sometimes sit in ashes, is when, with the cultural mindset. He tore his clothes. He mourned as if something or someone had died. That's that's what the, the imagery is here. So he he tore his clothes, and the king commanded Hilkiah the priest. And came the son of Shaphan, and Achbor, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan, the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, and then Ikom and Echbor, and Shaphan, and Esaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Okay, just, just so you understand, the keeper of the wardrobe is the dude who takes care of the, the king's robes. Okay, so if you start going back through those names, they went to the prophetess. She's like the only person who's speaking for God right now in this, this world. This is how far they've gone again. And she's the wife of the son of the guy who takes care of the robes and who's the son of this guy, who's the son of that guy and connection. I mean, you're talking like the son of a butler, his wife. She lived in Jerusalem, but she lived in the second quarter, which is a long ways away from the kingdom or the king's um, seat. And they talked with her, and she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of this book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers... And you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Now, the work that Manasseh and Ammon did was basically, the consequences of that were undoable to a certain extent. Now, that's, that's painful for us to hear sometimes, but the choices that we make as people, sometimes we have to walk through the consequences of those things. But for Josiah, he heard the word of God, and it broke his heart to the point that he tore his clothes, he mourned for what they had done, and he humbled himself before God. Ooh, not only did he humble himself before God in this way, excuse me, he, for the next 13 years of his reign, would go throughout the land and he would tear down all of the high places. He cleaned out all of the pagan idols from the temples. He tore down the Baals and the, around the country. He tore down those totems, those Shara totems from around the country as well. He destroyed any altar of any pagan god that existed in the entire kingdom of Judah. He also restored the, the practices of, of the Hebrew people and they had for the first time in years upon years, they celebrated the Passover, something they were supposed to do as a people every year to celebrate what God had done in rescuing them from Egypt. They celebrated for the first time in decades a Passover. And his, his relentless pursuit of God changed the face of his nation. They still had a cost that had to be paid, but he led a reform that changed everyone. Before he passes away, he dies on a field of battle um, fighting Pharaoh Necro from Egypt. But before they, as in his, his uh, eulogy that you find in Second Kings, it says this in verse 25, which we have up here on the screen. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So we read this story, and we, we hear the heartbeat of, of what it means to come in contact with the word of God, to come in contact of the desire of God for our hearts, and how we should respond. We hear the, the heartbeat of God, and it should at the same time break our hearts. When we, we look at our own lives and we say, God, this is not, this is not who you are that, that's residing in me. This is the exaltation of myself, and God, I want to put you in that place in my life. The question remains, why should we be relentless in the pursuit of holiness? Why should we be like Josiah who says, I've heard what God wants for me. I recognize that my life is not that way. And I am going to relentlessly pursue, not for myself, but also for my whole kingdom, how I can follow God's word to the best. Why should we do that? It first and foremost is the will of God for our lives. We talked about that that desire of our creator to have a relationship with with you and with me. Those people had lost their way. They'd gone so far away from God that they couldn't even find the words that they were supposed to know in order to follow him. But God's desire for them was not that they they follow pagan gods or not that they they build idols. I mean, we just finished a series on the Ten Commandments where we talked about these are Our landmines in our lives, not for our, you know, to limit us, but to release us. Because the God that loves us wants that relationship. But God's desire is that we would learn His ways, that we would follow His words, not so that we can um, we can be rule followers, but so that we can have life and have a fulfilled life and a life without shame and a life without regret. Our God is a God of encouragement, not a God of limitation. And if we were to put ourselves, like, in a, in a scale and we say, this is my desire, and I'm going to lay it on the scale of my life, and this is what pagan the pagan worship of that day was, what is your desire, what do you want, what do you feel, how can you gratify yourself and that's the weight that you put on your life but God is saying at the same time I have this love for you that doesn't weigh what this weighs but will still bring balance to your life will still take those scales and give you fulfillment and give you joy and give you happiness that's his will for us in our pursuit of that is the pursuit of holiness. And that holiness is a pathway to relationship. Now as I started thinking about relationship, I started thinking about this idea of camouflage and why we wear it. You know, the the whole series is called No More Camouflage. So why why would we camouflage ourselves in our faith? Why would we hold uh, something between us, why would we stand in the corner and, you know, go get in a tree and, like, you know, hide ourselves back in that place? And the more I thought about holiness, the more the word hypocrisy kept coming to mind. And we have this this desire from God for who we are, and we've heard the words— and we know the words, and we don't necessarily follow the words, and in that we create a situation of shame. So we cover ourselves, and we hide. But if we were to live a life that was sold out to who God wanted us to be, that allowed us to look not with, although we should look with, with fear into the face of God, but to look in our, at our Father and say, I stand before you, and I am broken, and I'm messed up, but God, I am yours, and your love for me is greater than any camouflage that I could put on my life, so that I would look and into the eyes of my friends, into the eyes of my family, and I would say, I am broken, but God is restoring me. And I am in the pursuit of who he is. And I am in the pursuit of tearing down the things in my life that hold me back from him. There's no reason to camouflage that. Our culture is into restoration. You can watch HGTV. HGTV. You can watch speed television or wherever Gas Monkey Garage comes on. They go find a piece of junk car that's sitting in a garage that's been there since 1922. And they pull it out and they go, this is awesome. Because it's going to be something. And I feel like God looks at our lives and he says, yeah, you're, you might be a piece of junk sitting in a garage somewhere and you've been there for a long time and you're rusty and you're ratty and some mouse has done something in you that you don't want anybody to know about. And he's going to pull you out and put you into a place where the Holy Spirit takes you and like starts to grind down all that rust off your life and piece by piece by piece as we pursue who he is, we become this beautiful piece of art. It doesn't happen overnight, it doesn't happen all in a moment. But people wanna watch that. Our culture has proved that. They wanna watch restoration happen. There's no reason to hide. God loves us. He loves them. If our world could know That there's a God that loves them, even if they're covered in rust, not because he thinks something less of them, but because he wants to take their rust and he wants to remove it and prime them and reshape them and make them something beautiful. Doesn't our world want to know that? So checkers, it's not a difficult game, right? You move on diagonals, you jump over other players, you take a piece, they take a piece. You win, you lose. It's a 50-50 shot no matter what. There are rules to the game. There are rules to the game of checkers so that you can enjoy that game but the biggest thing is so that you can enjoy that game with somebody else. I've been Michael's mentor for four years now. I've made the decision. <laughs> maybe <laughs> I don't live anywhere near Michael anymore, but I'm still going to drive at least once a month for, to go to that school and meet with him and play a game and talk about his month and talk about his week. And Michael has learned to play checkers. Last year, I had the opportunity to teach him how to play play chess. Chess is so much more complicated than checkers. But little bit by little bit, as Michael has learned to trust me, and I've learned who he is, we've been able to grow together. The result... Is that Michael is happier with who Michael is, but most of all, Michael has a whole new set of skills. We're all, we're able to play all kinds of different games together, me as a teacher, him as a student. But now he also gets to play those games with other people, peer to peer. But one of the coolest things that happened this past year, sorry, this little kid gets to me all the time, is that I gave Michael a chess set for his birthday. And um, totally freaked out. Awesome. You know, felt like the best person ever. It's just a really cheap chess set from Ollie's. But, but he took it home, and he taught his dad how to play so that they could play the game together. Folks, holiness is not just a personal thing. Holiness gives us an opportunity to reach out and to touch our God and to not be ashamed, to know that he loves us, to know that he is there and he is restoring us. But holiness also opens a door for our lives so that we can stand before people around us and we can say, this God has taught me this. And I can stand here with you And we can live this life together. But not only that, the things that he's taught me, I can take those things and I can teach somebody else. And the levels of relationship that he builds in a community, in a place where he wants to do something amazing in each and every one of us. And each and every one of those people that are outside these walls happens when we relentlessly pursue the heart of God, and remove the things from our lives that would get in the way. That is why we pursue holiness. So that we can know him and so others can know him as well. So this morning, as we, um, as I shut up and we, we go back to taking the moment to hear from God, I just, I want to encourage you. If you have thought of holiness as something kind of weight that makes your life more difficult, that makes your relationship with God more difficult, if holiness has been about shame in your life, then there is nothing special about this wood and this carpet. But it is a place that if you were to come and lay your heart before God, like an altar, like those places that um, Josiah restored in those days, and you come and you say, God, I want to be restored by you, you can do business here. If you are already in the shop, and you're already being restored and you, you understand this, but you just want more of God, I encourage you as, as the band will come and, and, um, and it gets ready to prepare and play, that we would take these last few moments just to glory or glorify God as he just loves on us and be thankful for the work that he's doing in our hearts, in our lives. Let me pray as we, as we just close. Father, this morning, I thank you. I thank you for the simplicity of how much you love us. God, we make it such a complicated thing sometimes, this good news that the God of the universe is is the one who, who loves us beyond anything else. And we say, only if this and only if that, and God... We are rust buckets in your, in your shop. Make us, God, mold us, help us to trust the hands of a master craftsman as step by step you restore us and make us into the piece of art that you intended for each and every one of us. God, not so that we can glory in ourselves and exalt ourselves again, but God, so that we can stand before you whole and complete. And we can stand before this world whole and in the work of completion so that this world can see and know how good you are, God. Thank you for reaching out of eternity for not ignoring us and being a distant God, but being a God who is actively pursuing who we are, God. Help us to have your heart as we actively pursue you back.